this week on the Backtable podcast. And what was really interesting about that was it's not the AHI that was a predictor. A lot of kids would have, you know, AHI of 100 and have no events overnight. What we found were the predictors was the gas exchange and specifically the oxygen. So we found that having 0.5% of the night below 90% for their oxygen was a predictor of an overnight airway event, as well as having a nadir below 80%, which kind of makes sense, right? Because if you think about these patients, some of these patients have a very low threshold to arousal. And so they're going to have a small little obstructive event and they're going to wake up right away. And that's not the kid that's going to have a respiratory complication after surgery. They're protecting their airway just fine. And in fact, they're protecting their airway so well that their brain can't rest, right? And so they're having a lot of daytime behavioral issues. But it's the kid who's not protecting their airway, who has a very high threshold arousal. Those are the ones who are going to have, you know, respiratory complications that are dangerous. And those are the kids that where their, their brains can allow them to get down into the 80s or spend a lot of time below 90%. And so for this, these patients, that's, that's what I'm looking at is a gas exchange. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, and I'm here today with a very special guest. I have Dr. Javen Nation. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego and an assistant professor of pediatric otolaryngology at the University of California, San Diego Department of Otolaryngology Head Neck Surgery. Javen is here to talk to us today about children with complex sleep apnea. Welcome to the show, Javen. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Gopi. Thanks for having me on. So for our listeners who may not know, Javen and I are contemporaries. I think of you as a contemporary because we interviewed at the same time for our fellowships and um, for NPEDS. And uh, I remember meeting you at the, I think at the MUSC fellowship interview. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I have this like vivid memory of talking to you and being like, I, I know him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Like wow. I met him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great memory. I, I, I couldn't remember exactly <laughs> like, where I no, met I you. No, I don't really remember that. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But I, but I definitely remember meeting you on the trail because uh, yeah. you know, we met at different, I, I think a few different, different spots. spots. All right. So Javen, first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Like you, you know, we finished in 2014 from our fellowship. Yeah, and it, it's so fun being on the interview trail, uh, meeting different people, because a lot of those uh, relationships, you know, can carry forward in the future. You know, we never know. We're kind of, you know, just kind of getting to know each other. But it's, it's so great, because you realize when you're out there, it's such a small world of pediatric otolaryngology. And yeah, every relationship you make is, is meaningful, because we see each other over and over again. Uh, and everybody's like so special in their own way. So yeah, so I've, I've been out going on 10 years now. Yeah. So since 2014, I've been practicing. And when I started, Rady Children's had a special need for somebody who could uh, really focus on these uh, children with complex sleep apnea. Uh, so every practice is going to have this, these uh, certain patients where they kind of fall out of your, your typical norm of you know, pediatric sleep apnea. And there's something about them that makes them more complex. Lots of different things can do this, right? Maybe it's because they're young or they're infants. Maybe it's because they've already had their tonsils and adenoids taken out and they have residual sleep apnea. Or maybe it's just because they have a lot of other comorbidities uh, that make them extra special. And uh, yeah, so you know, our, our practice had these handset of these patients and they really needed me to kind of fill this void and I was excited to do it. And what my hospital did was actually send me around the country to visit uh, four different places. So I went out to Stanford with Peter Coltai, went out to Cincinnati with Stacey Ishman, went out to Colorado with Norm Friedman, uh, I went out to University of Michigan as well. And I got to see what, what these institutions were doing for these patient populations. Um, and some of them, you know, had complex sleep 
multidisciplinary practices. And then some of them were just, you know, well-known people who were thought leaders in this area. And I kind of got to collect all that and bring it back to Reedy Children's. And what we did, and I, and I did it with Dan Lesser, who uh, is a pulmonologist. So we were a team tasked to kind of make this happen. And so we brought this back to Reedy Children's uh, and started our, our complex sleep clinic. Uh, and it's been, it's been very rewarding, uh, and we've learned a lot over the years. That's really cool. Uh, it's really cool that you got to travel with a, another specialist and go to several places in the country. How long did it take over? How much time did y'all go to visit Stanford and Cincy and Michigan and Colorado? Yeah, we did it over a year. Yeah, so, wow. so kind of that first year out, we were, you know, talking about the, the clinic, you know, working with the administration on how it's going to be structured, uh, as well as going around and visiting these places. Uh, so each visit was like two or three days. Yeah. Okay. And what'd y'all mm-hmm. do on those visits? Yeah. So, so sometimes we would, so generally we would, would spend a day in clinic and kind of see, especially if they had a, a multidisciplinary clinic, we wanted to see how they ran that clinic. And a lot of times we'd spend time in the operating room, uh, watching them do different secondary sleep surgeries. And yeah, and then sometimes we'd spend time with the pulmonologists, we'd spend time with the respiratory therapist, and really just kind of get a feel for how things worked for them uh, and how, how they structured this practice for these patients. That's great. All right, well, let's, let's get into y'all's practice then, because that, that sounds like a very rich background and training for it. And now here we are 10 years later, and uh, we can go into it. So, you know, you kind of briefly mentioned, you know, some of these children's, children's children with complex sleep. You know, we talk about comorbidities. We've talked about uh, the kids who have may have had TNA and they still have sleep apnea. Let's get a little bit more specific into who are these kids and how they present for you. What are their risk factors? What do you normally see? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times these, these are patients I will see in my general ENT clinic. And it's really nice to have a place to send these patients. And it's nice for the partners as well and, and for the hospital in general. Uh, so, you, you know, you come across a patient who... So let's, let's put some examples out there. So let's say I see a patient with Down syndrome who's already had their tonsils and adenoids out. For all these patients, we're going to get a post-operative sleep study. And, you know, if they're still symptomatic and they still have sleep apnea, it can be very challenging to decide what to do next, right? So in the past, you would send them to Palm and say, hey, you know, go see the pulmonologist and they're going to talk to you about CPAP. And the pulmonologist would see them and say, hey, well, maybe there's some adenoid regrowth or, or something. You know, they'd have a question, so they'd send them back to see us. Right. And so these, these families are kind of getting back, you know, bounce back and forth between the specialists. Now, you, you know, you see these patients in your general practice and you refer them into the complex sleep clinic. So it's kind of our home. It's like our catchment area for these patients. And so, you know, if, if there's questions you don't have for pulmonology or for craniofacial surgery or for orthodontics, we can, we can handle it then. So we refer them into that clinic. So, so generally we self-refer in this clinic. We've talked about opening it up. And, you know, having pediatricians and uh, other people refer into it. But we've found that it's, it's actually more high yield if the specialists only are referring into it. So they're all coming from ENT. They're all coming from pulmonary. They're all coming from craniofacial surgery, as well as uh, genetics and sometimes neurology. And so it's, it's kind of that, that I'll call them elite bunch, right? Where you're, you're by yourself in and, and, and clinic and you're like, wow, this patient's complicated. What, what should we do next? So yeah, you know, after I see them, but then, but then most of the time when we're th- thinking about these patients, we're in the, the group multidisciplinary setting of uh, all the specialists together in one room, uh, speaking with the family and trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, no. So that's basically the, the child sees all of you guys then in, in one setting or how does the patient visit go 
in the multidisciplinary complex sleep clinic? Yeah, it's or a great do question. Re- pre round on these patients and to decide who each kid needs to see, like, or how to. Do y'all just have rounds at the table at the end of a certain afternoon and have a list of patients? Tell me how it actually, you know, works. Yeah, yeah, great question. So first, we'll we'll sit down before the clinic starts and we'll go through all the patients. Uh, and we have uh, an amazing PA, Anita Lazar, who will put all the patients I together. Know Anita. She oh, you was know, in oh, Dallas that's at right. Point. Shout out that's to Anita. Right. I've worked with her. She's so bright. She's so She's bright. She's the best. Yeah, yeah. She's I know. We're best. so lucky to have her in San Diego. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so she'll, she'll put them all together and we'll, we'll sit down for about 30 minutes before and kind of go through all the patients as a group and say, okay, here's, here's who's coming, you know, here's their medical background. Uh, and we can kind of review the sleep study together uh, and just kind of prep for the patient. And then we all go see the patient together. So this is something that's evolved over time. We used to see the patients separately. So I'd go in by myself and talk to the family and then pulmonary would come in and talk to the family and we'd kind of all have separate visits. But what we find works better is doing, doing it all together at the same time. And the reason why is the patients don't have, or the families don't have to say the same thing over and over again. So it works for the families, but it also works for us because what I really enjoy is I, I like listening to the history that the plastic surgeons are getting or the pulmonologists are getting because it's making, I'm learning a lot from them as well. And they're learning from me because we're all coming at this from a slightly different angle. And, and then really what it comes down to is kind of working through our treatment algorithm together is, is the best way. Because there's, there's really no right or wrong answer uh, for what to do. And so in many cases, it's a conversation with the family. And having, having that conversation together is the best way to go about it. Because we can say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about orthodontics, right? What, what are the options here? Uh, and we say, okay, what did the soft tissue look like? And then, you know, if the plastic surgeon's there, we can talk about, you know, orthognathic surgery or whatnot. And having that conversation together with the family, I think, is uh, more valuable than talking about it afterwards and then calling the family yeah. with what we decided. Because it's yeah, really, because it's really the, the, the shared decision. The thought process for everybody is happening at the same time. And then you can actually discuss it together at that moment and then talk and bring the family in at the same time. That sounds pretty awesome. Exactly. Right. And because yeah. the family's input is just as important as, as anybody's because it's a shared decision with them. Right. So uh, yeah. in some cases, the idea of going through orthognathic surgery doesn't sound so bad to them. Other times they hear that and they're like, no, let's, let's think about something different. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked about the kids are going to be the ones that had the TNA and we still have some uh, sleep apnea. It's a lot of our uh, children with Down syndrome who will have residual sleep apnea uh, are, you know, sometimes our kids that are obese who maybe have had TNA still having, you know, symptoms. Uh, we've talked about craniofacial kids or kids with hypotonia, syndromic, other syndromic kids, achondroplasia, I'm sure, come in yep. as well. Those are yep. tough. That's a tough group. Yeah. Who else am I, who, in a, am I assuming correctly in saying most of these kids have had um, a TNA or, because we also find that there's, you know, a handful, especially the young kids who haven't had TNA yet, who, you know, I, and I think of my achondroplasia uh, babies, a lot of them will get these sleep studies when they're like, you know, three to four months because they want to, you know, maybe we're looking at some concern at the frame and magnum and, you know, is there any concern with sleep apnea? Now we have this sleep study and uh, maybe the central component looks fine, but now we have this obstructive component, but they're four months. Do you have kids like that too? I mean, right? So there's definitely, 
not most of them, but there's these, I feel like we're seeing more and more of even some of the kids that aren't, okay, post-TNA that haven't gotten better, that maybe we haven't done the TNA on, or super tiny, or, you know, tell me in your experience. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, we have a handful of, you know, achondroplasia, achondroplasia patients. Uh, yeah, and just like you, you said, we see them at a younger age, because, yeah, you know, we're getting a sleep study, you know, before the age of one. And yeah, sure enough, they don't have big tonsils. And hardly anybody's going to do a tonsillectomy on anybody under one, especially if they're yeah. not enlarged, right? Right. Yeah. So, so that's then, a very challenging yeah. patient population as well. Um, yeah. We see a lot of cerebral palsy patients. Yeah, um, the tone, hypotonia. I mean, what are you, right? Like, how do you, um, those are always difficult as well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the, the craniofacial patients. Um, so a lot of patients with cleft palates, any sort of craniofacial disorder, uh, if their, their skeleton is small, their airway's going to be small, and they're high risk for sleep apnea. We see a lot of pierrot-bin patients um, who've already had a distraction maybe when they're younger. Because generally, if they have pierrot-bin and they have sleep apnea, when they're, when they're an infant, they're going to start with a distraction. But a lot of these patients will come back when they're five, and they've already had a distraction, and now they have very severe sleep apnea, and they're not tolerating a CPAP. Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, diverse patient population, uh, and it really helps to have all the specialists there together to figure out you know, the best options. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you, you say you'll get your history together, I, I think that's super interesting. I'm glad you uh, have that perspective because I want to know what do you kind of look for specifically as a, a pediatric otolaryngologist in your history? But what have you pulled now being in a multi-D clinic simultaneously with your cross, you know, your partners and other specialties? What else do you now pull into your history or are you looking for that's like, oh yeah, I need to, you know, this is important as well. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. I've pulled more medical stuff into my history. So uh, for the younger patients, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask about reflux. I, I think about, you know, vomiting at night because the pulmonologists are very concerned, right? They don't want to fit this patient with a CPAP and put a mask over their mouth if they have vomiting issues. Uh, I think a lot about, so a lot of these patients will have G-tubes and we think a lot about the feeds and if they're, doing, if they're getting continuous feeds at night, you know, all those safety things that the pulmonologists are considering that I'd, I'd never really thought about before, I now consider. From the craniofacial surgeons, I've, I've learned a lot about, you know, when they can intervene on the craniofacial skeleton. They were the ones who actually taught me to start looking at the teeth. And so the, the plastic surgeon would always look at the teeth. He'd look at the bite. He'd look for a crossbite. He'd look at like mixed dentition. Uh, and I used to think like, why is, why is he looking at this? Like, why, why does this matter? And really for him, before he can do anything, he has to get the teeth set up just right, right? So he's going to have him see the orthodontist. Orthodontist is going to get him in braces, do the expansion, whatever they have to do before he can do any kind of changes to the, the skeleton. So the teeth are so important. And, and it, it helped me appreciate that because a lot of these patients, what you see, especially like the cerebral palsy patients who, who have never eaten, is they don't have those bite forces. And the bite forces really help kind of the, the craniofacial skeleton grow, especially transversely. And so these patients who've always had an open mouth posture, have never fed, they have these extremely narrow palates. Right? You, can, you can picture some of these patients, right? low functioning cerebral palsy, never ate a day in their life. And it, it, essentially their, their maxilla just caved in, right? In some cases, it's almost like the molars are touching in the back just because I've never used it, right? And so it helps me appreciate that because now, now it makes sense like when I'm trying to put a scope in their nose, why there's just no nasal airway, right? There's so much nasal resistance because that craniofacial skeleton just kind of collapsed in on itself. And so all this is important. I also look a lot at uh, clues that the teeth give me. Right. So I can tell, I look to see if they're grinding. Right. So 
sometimes the parents don't realize what's going on at night. And if you see a kid that has just, you know, worn facets on their teeth and they're completely flat, you know they're grinding. And this this might be a little controversial. Um, I was going to ask you, right? Don't all kids grind between three to six years of age or no? Is that... <laughs> No, how, not necessarily. How, how common is grinding affiliated with obstructive sleep apnea? And is it usually in along with other symptoms like snoring or mouth breathing pauses? Or can grinding isolated be a concern? Let's go into it a little bit because I've always been curious and I've never known how to place that well unless they have their other constellation of obvious sleep disorder breathing symptoms because I just don't, I don't understand it well, I don't think. Right. And I don't think anybody does. The, the way I think about it is, is we don't, so you ask the question, you know, how, how often is it associated? We don't know. I haven't seen a study that's actually looked at that exactly. Because I think there's other things that can lead to grinding, right? So the kid's stressed out or there's anxiety issues, they can certainly grind. The way I, the, my framework for thinking about this is if they're grinding, there's likely they're, they're, they have high nasal resistance. So there seems to be an association with nasal resistance, which leads to mouth breathing, which can lead to grinding. Uh, so what that's telling me is the kids, you know, not breathing well through the nose at night. I don't think it's diagnostic, but it clues me into uh, the fact that, you know, there's something going on with their airway. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully we learn more. I, I know there's some people who put too much emphasis on it. And with a lot of these things, especially with like myofunctional therapists, I, I feel like sometimes there's, there's too much certainty on when, what these uh, signs and symptoms can mean. So the honest approach right now is that we just don't know. We, we're still kind of learning and trying to figure it out as much as we can. But I think there's definitely a role and, and there's, there are important signs to pay attention to, even if yeah. we can't use it for diagnostic purposes. No, you're right. And I think that, you know, what our colleagues notice in other fields, I mean, that's why you have this amazing multidisciplinary clinic uh, for complex sleep. But in, when I was in Dallas, sometimes we would include our pediatric dentists in some of our rounds and clinics because a lot of our patients would be referred from our dental colleagues a lot of times for their screening before they're doing any uh, sedation in clinic, but it's the same where it's like, hey, the light bulb moment about the teeth, like that's kind of important. I've never noticed it came when, you know, one of the pediatric dental colleagues was like, yeah, we should look at this because of this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Or th there's obviously something more. It's just kind of having to be open to listening and then understanding, well, how does thinking about how it may or may not apply and in what scenarios. So I think, I think it's a great, it's a great point. Yeah, for sure. I've learned, um, I've learned a lot from the dentist as well. They, they pay attention to like thumb sucking and they, they yeah. can tell right away when they look at the patient if they've been thumb sucking and I, I wouldn't have noticed that before right for for whatever reason I feel like we're not as like the way we're trained is to not be as in tune with that um yeah. but now I look at a patient and you the can oral, tell they're a thumb sucker concern of an oral airway I mean it, what, what's the tell me about the thumb sucking because yes it does come up and actually had a patient had the mom had come in because her main concern was that you know when she pulls when he, the child was was like maybe four sucking their thumb at night. And um, when she would try to take the thumb out, he would start to look really uncomfortable with his breathing. And I'm like, is it is the thumb the oral airway here? And, you know, we, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, let me take a look. And we looked at the tonsils and this and that. And we kind of went more into sleep, but that was the initial red flag. So tell me more um, from from your end about, yeah. the, from what you hear about thumb sucking. Right, right. So, so as far as like the thumb stenting open the airway, I'm not sure. Okay. It'd be really interesting That's really to like, thought about it. Yeah. It. Yeah. It could be. It could be. I'd love to see like a Sydney MRI or, or like a yeah. sleep endoscopy where the thumb is in the mouth and, and see how that's changing the airway. <laughs> what, what I notice is, is when they're thumb suckers, they're, they're pushing their palate up. And so just like that, you know, those severe CP kids I talked about who are kind of like the end stage of, you know, like 
a collapsed maxilla. These kids, you're going to see a narrow maxilla. You're going to see a narrow arch. And so you'll see that the front teeth will start to flare out. And you look at the palate and they're, they're hard palates. It's very high and it's narrow, right? And then that, what that's doing to us is that's, that's narrowing the, the nasal airway. So they're going to have a small nas- nasal airway, increased nasal resistance, which lead to more, more, more mouth breathing and decreased airflow. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. Um, is there, do you know if there's a certain length of time or a certain age to which if there is persistent thumb sucking, they're at risk for those types of airway changes? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not the expert on that. Uh, generally, yeah. what I've heard our, our dentists say is they should try and get them uh, to stop before age three. Okay. Yeah. And then have you gotten, so I know, again, I, I haven't done this. Um, my mentor and former division chief at, in Dallas, Ron Mitchell, um, had asked at one point earlier on uh, a couple of years ago was, you know, going to some of the pediatric dental sleep conferences um, as a speaker. And um, there was a lot with like cephalometrics because, you know, in, in dentistry, they do a lot of in the office x-rays or CAT scans. And so there's a lot that they do with measurements. And I've had kids come to me with uh, an image from the um, from the dentist. And a lot of times now it's those quick CTs, you know, the and they have there's, you know, different measurements. And any role of that? Do you see that in your clinic? Do some of the specialists in your clinic use that? Tell me what you've learned from that from that side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so that's something I've, I've appreciated as well. As I've I've reached, I've built relationships with a lot of our pediatric dentists in the community. And one of the things they told me was that when I first kind of started working with them was that they were glad to have this bridge because they felt like they were left out when it came to the care of children snoring. You know, they they see these kids regularly, right? They they start when they're you know, under two for sure, one maybe. And they see them twice a year, you know, and watch them grow. And and they say that, you know, they would have concerns and often they would send them to see an ENT and they felt like they weren't, you know, being heard uh, or the parents were getting shut down. So so they're really, nice, they're really glad to have that, that connection. Um, and, and I think what it comes down to is we just have to sort of learn to speak a similar language, right? Because sometimes what they're looking for doesn't translate to us what, and what we're looking for. And so we dismiss it. The way I approach it is, is they know these kids better than I do, right? Like I, I'm, I'm getting a one-time snippet, right? And I'm going to see them once. Whereas their pediatric dentist is seeing this kid grow up. They're seeing their face change. They're, they're seeing their, you know, oral and dental habits. And so if a dentist has a concern, you know, I, I definitely want to see them and hear it out. So yeah, so I've built these relationships. So my door is open. If, if the dentist has any concern, please come on over. Let's talk about it. Let's see what's going on. As far as role of imaging, I love cone beam CTs. I think, I think they're awesome. There's one particular orthodontist I work with uh, who gets a lot of them. Uh, and what I appreciate about her is that she's not just trying to get straight teeth. She's trying to develop the child's airway, right? And so if she does expansion, it's not because, you know, she needs the maxillary teeth to just be slightly wider than the, the mandibular. It's because she sees that the, the nasal airway is smaller or she's, she's going for maximal airway uh, development. And I appreciate that so much because the old way of practicing uh, orthodontics is to go for straight teeth, you know, whatever it takes. If you have to pull teeth, it doesn't matter. Straight teeth is the goal, which, you know, leads to, to poor airways. That's actually what happened to me. I had a whole bunch of teeth pulled when I was younger. And me too. I, I was going to say I had those same Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Like now I go see the dentist and they look in my mouth and they're like, uh, 1980s or early 1990s orthodontics. They're like, oh man. Yeah. We went through that period where they were just y- yanking teeth out. And nowadays it's like, don't pull teeth, right? Keep those teeth in, expand everything, expand the craniofacial skeleton, and then the teeth are going to help support that craniofacial skeleton. Otherwise, it's just going to kind of shrink in. So 
Yeah. So, so I use those cone beam CTs all the time. I mean, it's great. It's like basically like a CT. They can send it. I ask the families to bring it and I can scroll through it and see what's going on. And we'll find a lot of other things, right? We'll find like a conchabulosa or big turbs, sometimes some sinus disease. You, you can assess the lingual tonsils at the same time. Uh, so yeah, I find, I find this is a very, very helpful bridge. Now, are there any measurements like certain, you know, mins or maxes for like, um, you know, anterior posterior distance of soft palate to like, you know, oropharynx or, you know, width of, you know, nasal floor or like, you know, are there certain measurements or metrics that have been established to for, the, for that kind of um, to see in terms of airway? Like, oh, that's narrow there. Like, ha- has that kind of come to fruition yet? Not yet. Yeah, okay. not yet. So, is that so a lot sort of, of what we're thinking might be something in the future or? Potentially, yeah. So, so a lot of these programs, when you get a cone beam CT, you can measure the, the airway volume. And, and so they, they have their own like little metrics that'll say, oh, you know, the, the volume's low in this area. There needs to be more research done in this area because, you know, as we know, like the airway is a dynamic thing, right? So, you know, if you're looking at like the nasopharyngeal airway volume, you know, is a kid breathing through the nose at the time, right? Like, you know this, right? You put a scope in their nose and... You know, they're kind of wincing down and so their soft palate's up. And so you get to the nasal pharynx and their palate's up and it looks like the adenoid's huge, right? And there's no space there. And then you tell them to take a breath in through their nose and the palate drops down, right? And it goes from like... <laughs> You're like, like 100% percent like, obstructed to 50. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how it's do you normal. quantify that, you know? Yeah. When you're getting a cone yeah. beam CT, you know, so, yeah. so, you know, that's one of the reasons we like to do sleep endoscopies. But I think there's a role for this. I, I think there's a lot of good information we can get. Uh, we just have to figure out how to do it properly. Yeah, that's a, a that's interesting. Um, okay, so before we get into like hard like the sleep studies and imaging, I do want to quickly ask you any special tips, tricks that you have for just a basic phys- physical exam. What are you looking at, and what do you check for when you're you know when these when the when this child or this baby comes into your clinic? Yeah, so so let's just talk about like a, a typical patient. First thing I'm looking for is is I'm watching the patient breathe, right? So as I'm getting the, the history from the family. So thank God. So we just got masks off in our clinic and this has been so great because it's so important to actually see what their mouth looks like and see what they look like when they're breathing. Uh, so from the second they walk in, you can hear them breathing. And there's, there's a great sign. I, I stole this from Norm Friedman, but he calls it the Darth Vader sign. And these are the kids who walk into your clinic and, and they sound like Darth Vader, right? Right. Huge clue there, right? So this, this kid has nasal resistance. You know, is it, is it allergies? Is it turbs or is it adenoids? To be determined, right? But you know this kid's not breathing well through his And they're nose. awake. <laughs> yeah, this is when they're awake. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, so that's your first clue is what is their what does their breathing sound like the second they walk in, and I just watch them as I as I'm talking to the parents. I'm I'm looking at the patient. I'm watching them breathe. Do they have an open mouth posture? Uh, are they breathing comfortably through their nose? That type of thing. And so then, in the exam, I'm looking at the ears, look in the nose, right? So if they have the Darth Vader sign, I look in their nose, and their turbs are wide open. I can't see the adenoids. Sometimes I imagine I can. What do you, what do you think? Like sometimes I feel like I see like a little like like yeah, shine you know, all the way in the very back, but I'm not sure it's the adenoids unless I put a scope yeah, in. Yeah, no, I think I've had that where I thought I've seen the adenoids on anterior maybe twice in 10 years or 15, you know, like twice in my lifetime of, you know, doing like looking in the nose as an otolaryngologist. So I, I don't I don't know. I, I feel like I need a scope to right. to get a look. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a mirage back there, right? Like it's like I think it's there. <laughs> I, I, I can see, you know, clinically I know it's there, right? Because the nose is open right. and I can hear him breathing, right? Yeah. So I know the adenoids big. Yeah. I don't have to do anything more to really kind of make that diagnosis. But every once in a while I look back there and I'm like, it's like a mirage. You know, it's like I, I think <laughs> I see it, but 
but I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just making this up. I don't know. Yeah. So. Do you usually scope for an adenoid e- eval? Because you had mentioned, and we see these, hey, I think the adenoids have grown back, you know. Um, and that's especially important, especially for the kids that have mild to moderate sleep apnea. You know, maybe it's not the severe kid, but the AHI is like six. And they already had a TNA, normal weight. Um, do you scope or do you get a neck, lateral neck x-ray or what are your thoughts yeah. on on that? So this is a patient and they've already had a, a TNA. I'm going to yeah. scope. Yeah. Yeah, okay, w- yeah. Without question. Yeah. So if, if they're in a complex sleep clinic, they're going to get a scope, right? Because it's, it's really the, the best way to assess what's going on with the airway. Now, if I'm in general ENT clinic and I'm seeing a three-year-old uh, with mouth breathing, Darth Vader sign, and the, the turbs aren't big, I'll talk to the family and I'll kind of feel the patient out, right? So some of these kids are really shy. Like you look in their ears and they're uncomfortable with that. And you look in their nose and they start crying. I don't usually force a scope on those patients. In, in many cases, if they're like under five, I'll just get a lateral neck x-ray just to kind of confirm. I find that families aren't comfortable going to the operating room. Some, some are, but most aren't comfortable going to the operating room without something a little bit more diagnostic than just my clinical history saying they have big adenoids. Yeah, especially, so, so I, yeah, if the tonsils are big, I don't push it, you know, obviously there's something else, there's something with it to kind of do. But if I'm thinking just isolated adenoid, you're right. Like sometimes having something more concrete is helpful and you're right families and and you know as a parent like it's nice to know what the clinician is using to make that decision and i can understand you know like what you, i think what you just said about learning to speak the similar language whether it's with our partners or some specialists or cross specialists or our family like that's what all this is about and so sometimes the x-ray might be a similar you know what i mean uh, coming to a common ground in that in that setting as well so yeah for sure yeah, you know, where I know a lot of people who who take a different view, where they say, "I don't want to expose this kid to radiation, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do the scope." Right? They're they're not that bad. It's they're they're really quick. And the other issue you run into with X-rays is you have to know your X-ray tax, or you have to do it in a place where you're comfortable, because if they don't do it properly, it's it's use, it's useless. Right? And so, in in my practice, we have uh, our clinic at our main area, so at at our, the hospital setting. And so, if I send them for an X-ray there, these X-ray techs have been doing this lateral neck X-ray for for years and they're super good at it. And it's, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you shouldn't get x-rays or, or neck x-rays because, you know, they're not, they're not accurate. But what I've found is that they, they give me a sense of what's going on, right? Especially if you have a good, a good tech who gets a good x-ray, you know what's going on. If I'm, we have satellite clinics. And so if I'm somewhere different and they're going to outside, you know, institution get their x-ray, I think about it differently. Probably I'd probably do a scope just because I don't want to get yeah. the x-ray and, and have it be non-diagnostic. Well, and every once in a while, this is not common, but I've had kids with very, very nas- uh, narrow nasopharynx, and it's just big eustachian tube tori on the x-ray. Because when you scope them or in the OR put them to sleep, they don't have much like adenoid tissue. So every once in a while, so I, I do think the technique, you know, sometimes and the consistency and the history and sort of can make a difference. So on the physical exam, um, you mentioned how, how are they breathing when they walk in? We've talked about, you know, posture. We've talked about uh, adenoid evaluation. Any other, like, key things that you're looking for on physical exam? So we kind of talked about their teeth, right? So, so I pay attention to this. I look for crossbites, uh, anterior, posterior crossbites. This is kind of the clue that, you know, they have a high arch. So high arch is a, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of measure in many cases, right? Especially for an otolaryngologist. So, you know, we ask each other, like, what does that mean to have a high arch? You know, does it mean they have a crossbite? Or they, they might not have a crossbite, but still have a high arch, right? So usually we just kind of say, well, it looks kind of high, right? It doesn't look nice and wide. 
what I've found is, is, you know, talking about speaking the same language with people is if I send them to see an orthodontist and they don't have a crossbite and I send them to see an orthodontist for a high arch and they don't have a crossbite, the orthodontist will generally say, no, I don't think we should do expansion, right? Unless you have kind of one of those specialty orthodontists who's very focused on airway. And what they'll do is they'll do the expansion. And then if, if it really throws off the bite or the occlusion, they can tip the teeth later to fix that, that occlusion. Um, but if you send them to see an orthodontist who's maybe not as clued in, what they're looking for is that crossbite. And so they'll say, well, you don't have a crossbite, so there's no reason to do an expansion. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm paying attention to. We talked about, talked about the grinding and then, you know, obviously looking at the tonsils. Yeah. Now, in terms of some of the more, um, the quote, objective data we have, right? We have sleep studies. We've talked, uh, can we talk a little bit about um, what, what are the data points that you like to look at? What do you, you know, starting with just, you know, how do you go through it? I don't want to, yeah. How do you go through it? What do you look at? What stands out to you? What are the things that you kind of take into consideration? Yeah. So, so a lot of times it depends who the patient is, right? So let's, let's maybe talk about like a seven-year-old that comes to see me in, in general ENT clinic because uh, they're having a lot of, you know, behavior issues. You know, parents say, yeah, sometimes they snore, sometimes they don't. It's not clear. I don't hear any pausing or gasping. And so, so, so the framework I, I approach or that I use when I approach these kids is, is I, I like the one, two, three structure up. Are you familiar with this one? No? Okay. So th this is how I approach it with the family. So first strike I'm looking at is nighttime symptoms, right? Are they snoring, pausing, gasping, bedwetting, tossing, turning, right? So they check that box. Then we move on to the daytime symptoms, right? So are they waking up tired? Are they irritable? Are they disruptive in the classroom? Having a hard time staying on task, emotional ability, things like that. And if, if that's present, then they check that daytime box. And then the third box is enlarged tonsils and or adenoids, right? And so if they kind of match all three of these and they don't have any other high-risk symptoms, you don't actually really need to get a sleep study. But often they'll, they'll check maybe like two out of three boxes, right? So they'll maybe have some snoring, but daytime symptoms aren't so bad, or they'll have bad daytime symptoms and then nighttime symptoms aren't so bad. In those, in those patients, I'll get a sleep study, right? And so I, I sometimes I'm looking for different things. One of, the interesting th one of the interesting things about a sleep study is that you can't just pay attention to the AHI or the obstructive AHI and say, oh, you know, this kid, you know, the OHI is two and a half. It's not that bad. You're fine. Because what we actually find is a lot of these really high functioning kids, they're actually more symptomatic when they have mild sleep apnea than some of the kids that have severe sleep apnea. Because yeah. yeah, what we know is that, you know, a lot of kids, especially these high functioning kids with mild sleep apnea are more symptomatic than other patients who have severe sleep apnea. So these are kids that are going to have a lot of daytime symptoms. And you can't just say, Oh, well, your sleep apnea is not that bad. It's, you know, it's not a big deal because it's, it's a syndrome, right? It's not, it's, it's the way how to, it's the way of how these nighttime events are affecting you in the daytime. And that's really what it, when, when I think about why we care about sleep apnea for kids, it's not so much that, you know, it's going to lead to congestive heart failure and whatnot, as it might, we just don't know. We don't have those longitudinal studies, but really what we're looking at is we're looking at how this issue is affecting their development and their ability to learn and keep up with other kids, you know, and develop. So, you know, so, so that's really symptomatic ones. A lot of times won't have, you know, high AHIs, but intervening and doing something for them can make a huge difference. So, so for that particular patient, you know, I'm looking at, you know, is there any sleep apnea or not? Cause you know, if, if there's just no sleep apnea, then I'm not sure that, you know, and, and, and if they're not even snoring during the sleep study, I'm not sure that addressing that's the right thing for the patient. And I think we need to, you know, look elsewhere. If we're looking for complex patients, yeah. 
So, you know, if we're looking at like our Down syndrome patient who's in our complex sleep clinic, uh, who has, you know, very high HI, you know, of 20, what, what I care more about is the gas exchange, especially if we're going to consider intervening for this patient. As, as an ENT, probably the most common reason we get a, a sleep study for patients with comorbidities is to assess the severity, right? Because we want to we see, is this a patient that I have to be really concerned about after surgery? All right, so you know from the history the kid's going to have you know, sleep apnea, right? An obese kid with four plus tonsils. You know, why do we get a sleep study? It's not because we're questioning if they need the surgery or not. We just want to know how bad it is, right? And, and so this, this is one of those interesting areas too. And, and I'd like to get your take on it is, you know, at what point do you put them in the ICU? And nobody knows the, the answer to that. I know some places have a very low threshold to put them in the ICU. We're still trying to figure ours out. We actually just came with some criteria in the last couple of weeks as a group for who should go to the ICU. But, but you know, I did a study recently published in IJPL uh, looking at predictors of overnight events. And what was really interesting about that was it, it's not the AHI that was a predictor, right? So a lot of kids would have, you know, AHI of 100 and have no events overnight. What we found were the predictors was the gas exchange and specifically the oxygen. So we found that having 0.5% of the night below 90% for their oxygen was a predictor of an overnight airway event, as well as having a nadir below 80%, which kind of makes sense, right? So, because if you think about these patients, some of these patients have a very low threshold to arousal. And so they're going to have a small little obstructive event and they're going to wake up right away, right? And, and that's not the kid that's going to have a respiratory complication after surgery, right? They're, they're protecting their airway just fine. And in fact, they're protecting their airway so well that their brain can't rest, right? And so they're having a lot of, you know, daytime behavioral issues. But it's the kid who's not protecting their airway, who has a very high threshold of arousal. Those are the ones who are going to have, you know, respiratory complications that are dangerous. And those are the kids that where their, their brains can allow them to get down into the 80s or spend a lot of time below 90%. And so for this, these patients, that's, that's what I'm looking at is a gas exchange. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I don't think I have a... Like you said, I don't have like a specific AHI cutoff because you're right. Some of the kids that will come in with a sleep study of an AHI of 50 to 16 hour and we put them in the ICU do fine. Um, they're not the ones, you know, they're the, you know, if they're eight years old and whatnot. They're not the ones that always having trouble. So I think you're right. It, it's looking at all the things that kind of come into play. Um, O2 nader is important and how long I sometimes, you know, and this was actually more when the anesthesiologist, I remember kind of like, well, look at their CO2, look how much they're holding on, they're not ventilating, you know, they're holding on to that CO2. So started paying attention more to not just how, uh, how high it gets, but how long do they hold on to that. A lot of how induction goes and how extubation goes will clue you in and how, you know, a lot of times you have to reserve that IC bed with pre-op, um, and that's probably the better way to do it. Um, but how that, you know, those kind of, you have to start thinking about it because you, you know, in terms of your induction extubation, I mean, you're part of that care. So and in terms, you know, talking to the anesthesia and everybody being on the same page, um, age, and then, you know, obviously we've talked about comorbidities, which these kids, you know, whether it's poor tone, hypotonia, young age, craniofacial, difficult airway, all that comes into play. And so you're right. It's not just HI of, you know, you know, 50 an hour and, you know, yeah, those are going to kind of make you think, but there's a lot that has to come into play as well. So we don't miss an HI of 20 that then really has a peak CO2 in the you know, 60s for however much percent of time right, or something, right. you know, that's yeah, going to, yeah. or O2 Nader, you know, 75, whatever for a certain, you know, 
Um, are you looking at the graphs or do you just look at the typed out report? Tell me, tell me what you're what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. I, I go through the graph, right? So yeah. um, for, for the most part, you know, I work really close with their pulmonologist. And so we're on the same page. So what they put in the report is, is mostly what I care about. But I do look through the graph. Uh, main reason is you, you get a better sense of how that night went, right? So a really good study, you're going to see the patient fall asleep and you're going to see them go from like mild, moderate to deep sleep. And then they're going to have their first REM episode around midnight. Right. And then it's going to happen again. And then the REM episode will happen again. And it'll get longer and longer and longer. So the, the REM episodes increase into the morning hours and they get longer. And so I can, I can see, you know, how that sleep study went. Like, was this, was it a good night's sleep? If this is a patient where they're like, they're like in that mild range, right? It's like an AHI of two and a half, right? Did we underestimate what's going on? Did they get enough REM sleep? And so looking at the graph, you can quickly see how much time they were in deep sleep, how much REM they had. And give you give you a good sense, right? Or is this a kid that was in the sleep lab? He was uncomfortable. He never really could get comfortable. He just couldn't fall asleep. Or dad was laying next to him snoring, right? Some some other like circumstance, you know, affected the quality of the sleep study. And and looking at that graph can, can clue you into what's going on. You know, we we as otolaryngologists, we don't, you know, we don't watch the videos, right? Like the pulmonary doctors do, right? So if you talk to these guys, they look at the video. They're looking at the kid move back and forth. So they're they're getting that information which we don't have, but you know, we can get similar information looking at that graph. Yeah. Do you yeah. look at, in terms of other sort of data you might have in front of you at the time of that clinic visit, do you look at weight, BMI, or like growth over time? Like do, what about some of that information? Does that come into any of your decision-making? For sure. Yeah. So if this is a patient who comes in with sleep disordered breathing with big tonsils and we're thinking about doing surgery, I for sure look at the weight, right? So the BMI for each percentile is what I care about. So I'm going to always get a sleep study for these patients. I know it's not realistic everywhere for places that don't have, you know, that resource. We, we've grown as an institution a lot where we went from like having two beds per night to like 14. And so, so it's really nice, right? So we get a lot of sleep studies. We know what's going on with these patients beforehand. But, but for me, it's, it's a safety thing. You know, I, I recently had a patient sent to me that had Down syndrome and was two-year-old. And somebody else had ordered the sleep study, but it took a little bit longer than they wanted to get it. And so... Uh, it was mentioned by another otolaryngologist, you know, to say, hey, what's the point of waiting for the sleep study? The parents hear this kid obstructing at night, you know, he's got huge tonsils, right? He's got Down syndrome. Like, there's no question he's got sleep apnea. So, so what's the point? Maybe just admit him afterwards if you don't have that information. And fortunately, we, we did wait a little bit longer to get that sleep study. I'm so glad we did because the AHI came out at 115, right? And so it's like, it's very, very severe, right? And so what's the difference? I'm going to put that kid in the IC overnight versus putting him on the floor uh, where he can have a one-on-one -on -one nurse who's going to be at his bedside versus like a nurse who's sharing him with, you know, five to seven other patients. So I, I know it can be inconvenient and in many places it can be a hard resource to, you know, get access to. But in my opinion, I think it's extremely important. Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely. In, and we have, you know, like, especially like morbidly, you know, history of, you know, Down syndrome or morbid obesity or you know, anything, and even if like, especially when they kind of all kind of come together, each little thing is just going to, you know, exponentially make that sleep apnea worse and worse and that perioperative management more and more challenging. And so you're right, sometimes taking the sleep apnea didn't happen overnight. So taking the extra month or two that it might take to get the data you need so that it's set up right. And so that the care pre-op, post-op, periop, everybody's on the same page with sort of where this kid is at. Is, I think is very important. And I've had similar situations, frustrated parents, but for some of those kids where 
if that gut feeling doesn't feel right, like, and that's sort of that clinical sort of art of medicine, right? It's uh, what you see and how you, you know, and I'm not saying everything's sort of like um, anecdotal practice, but you sort of start developing that gut feeling. I think go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for <laughs> because sure. Because, sure. yeah, yeah, things happen um, yeah. easily. In terms of, uh, I started looking, so I look at BMI percentile for for age, and I started looking at weight uh, because one of my uh, my fellowship director, Romaine Johnson, looked at uh, weight gain velocity in some of these kids, and uh, found that you know kids that had rapid weight gain, and for example, over a year or two, versus kids that were already sort of quote heavy set but stayed in that same chart, the kids that had the greater change in weight had higher sleep apnea. Uh, on their PSGs. And so sometimes I'll look at that. And on the flip side, I've found um, some kids, and this was a family, uh, a, a child, a teenager, child with Down syndrome, who actually lost like like seven to 10 pounds. And his age I cut into half from 36 to 18. We were talking about all kinds of secondary sleep surgeries at the time. And, you know, it it cut it down. And so then it's like, well, okay, let's let's kind of reevaluate and see. You know what I mean? So ha- do you look at any of those trends? You know, I don't. I've never I've never heard that weight gain velocity uh, before. That's that's really interesting. Uh, I wonder why. I wonder if it has to do with the tone or with their like kind of natural tone being set at a certain area and not yeah, all and that. And then all of a sudden you have all that, that weight on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe it's what you're used to. Um, but I have seen the flip side with the weight loss. You know, it's not everybody that can do that, but if that, you know, and it's not a ton, like it's, you know, uh, over time, it can be a couple of pounds. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I don't know if we're going to lose the 20, whatever, right? Nobody, it's, it's even a simple, you know, just a little bit can, can go a long way. Um, yeah. Is uh, weight management, nutrition, any of that part of the clinic? Those are Absolutely. hard clinics to get into. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, so it's not, we don't have a nutritionist. Um, yeah. We don't have a bariatric surgeon. Those, those are those are dreams, you know, to maybe one day have, <laughs> have that. I would, I would absolutely love that. And, and I've talked about it uh, with, you know, the hospital administration, and we're just not there yet. There are places that have bariatric surgeons. But I got to say, one of the things I'm excited about is, you know, for all these patients, we have them see the endocrinologist, uh, if they're obese, you know, we'll loop in nutrition. But as far as weight management, it's, you know, usually disappointing, right? You, you tell them, you know, you advise them on how to eat better and, you know, spend more time outside and cut out the snacks and you know, these type of things that it's just hard, right? It's, it's hard for these kids to lose weight, you know, sitting around for six months or a year and, you know, seeing if they're going to lose weight, I, I generally find I'm disappointed. But I got to say, you know, the thing I'm, I'm excited about is our endocrinologists have recently started giving these kids Ozempic, the weight loss medication. And so, so this is kind of brand new for some of these really obese kids that have severe sleep apnea who, you know, use CPAP and, and do okay. They don't have great compliance, but maybe they do okay. Uh, we're starting some of these kids on Ozempic, and so I'm actually very excited to see how this uh, this changes uh, our management options for these patients. That's cool because even again, a few pounds might make a difference in terms of settings, you know, use as well as you know. So that that's pretty exciting. Yeah, for sure. Tell me a little bit about uh, the role of Dice or Cindy MRI in your practice. When do you get them? Which one do you like? How do you decide? Yeah. So, you know, I, I have done CINEs. It's not a, a main part of my practice. I, I usually use it if I'm, you know, really stuck or if there's some question about how the, the tongue base is affecting the palate. My, my more go-to is using sleep endoscopy. Um, so I use it generally in two different, two different situations. 
I'll do it for all Down syndrome patients prior to uh, TNA. Uh, and so there's, there's a, a DICE consensus panel that came out a couple of years ago. And, and they actually agreed with that, which is interesting because there's some people on the panel who agreed it's useful. Some people said it's not useful. Uh, I find it to be useful, especially for Down syndrome patients, because what I've found doing this for these patients is that the, the airway collapse pattern is different. So, you know, I did, I did a two-year-old yesterday with Down syndrome had huge tonsils and we did a sleep endoscopy and had big adenoids. And so he was collapsing behind a soft palate and you could see his tonsils were huge and they were, you know, had this lateral collapse completely obstructing his airway. Uh, so it's kind of nice to know because sometimes what I'll do is I'll do a sleep endoscopy for these patients and they might have two or three plus tonsils, but on the sleep endoscopy, the tonsils aren't moving much. And really what I'm seeing is I'm seeing the tongue base obstruct. And that's the hardest situation for me to be in. Because two, two questions arise. Uh, first one is, should I take out their tonsils? I can see on the sleep endoscopy that the tonsils aren't obstructing when they're sleeping. So should I take them out? Uh, and if I don't take them out, what should I do? And so, so I feel like right now we're in an area where first care, first line of therapy for kids with TNAs to take out their tonsils and adenoids, right? For a few reasons, right? One, we don't know how the airway reshapes after you've taken the, the tonsils out. So even if I'm not sleep endoscopy, I'm looking and I still see it's mostly tongue-based. If I take their tonsils out, you might get that lateral pharyngeal wall scarring that's going to reshape their airway that might change it, right? And still ultimately help them. But I'm, but I'm uncomfortable, right? Because it's not a fun surgery to go through, right? And, you know, they have 10 days of sore throat and they're uncomfortable and there's risk of bleeding. And having that extra information that I, you know, when, it, when I see it's a tonsils, I feel great about it. But when it's not, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. So, so this is data I'm currently collecting. You know, and I, I'm following these patients to see, you know, how do these patients who didn't have tonsil collapse on the initial sleep endoscopy do with their postoperative sleep study? Because uh, I think in the future, for a lot of these Downs patients that where we do sleep endoscopy and we find that, I think, I'm guessing, that we might do something different than start off with TNA. We're just not there yet. Yeah. So I, I do it for all those patients. But I, I, for a lot of patients that come through the sleep endo or the, the complex sleep clinic, I don't routinely do it. So, so people have different, you know, approaches to this. Uh, some people see the sleep endoscopy as just as diagnostic as getting a sleep study, right? And so you get a sleep study, you should get a sleep endoscopy for all these patients, and then use that information to make a decision for what to do next. That's not my approach. And, and the reason why is because you go to the operating room, you're putting them to sleep, there's some associated risk. But really for my decision-making, if this kid can tolerate CPAP, it doesn't really matter what the airway looks like, right? Does it make any difference if it's the palate or the, the lateral pharyngeal walls? It doesn't right? CPAP's going to blow it all open either way. And so our approach is we always start with CPAP, right? And if, if CPAP's not working, we're going to figure out ways we can maybe get it to work. Because we always tell families it's safe and it works great. Just the downside is you have to use it every day, right? And so for a lot of these kids, you know, we talked about nasal resistance before. We'll find they have, you know, small noses, they have narrow palates, you know, we'll, we'll do a, you know, get them plugged in with the orthodontist and do a palate expansion and often do like a turbinate reduction or, you know, maybe like a revision adenoid with the goal telling the family that it, in many cases, it's not going to fix the sleep apnea. So I can tell you about a patient I, I, I did yesterday, actually. So he's, he's a 12-year-old with autism, morbidly obese. He's over 200 pounds and he's 12. And, you know, he has very severe sleep apnea, you know, AHI 30 plus. And we saw him in clinic and he's just not tolerating his CPAP, right? He's got autism. It makes sense, right? Like, even like non-special needs adults, right? Compliance is still 50%, right? So you can imagine for this kid, he, he hates it. He doesn't do well with it. But one of the reasons is that the pressures are really high. And you look in this kid's nose 
and he's got some underlying allergies. He's got huge turbinates, um, small nasal airway, and he didn't have any. He he was status post TNA, and he didn't have any adenoid regrowth, but he had huge tori. And so you look into you look at his nasal pharynx, and the whole coin is obstructed by these huge tori, and it's it's really interesting. And so so I've I want to get that. your opinion on this. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. What do you do yeah. for that? So, you know, as long as you're just addressing the posterior cushion, you can shrink it down. I've only seen one study on it. I think it's a, a Korean study where they talked about addressing the, the torus for, for sleep apnea. And that was their approach. And if you do, you know, like when we're doing like a eustachian tube dilation, a lot of times we'll shrink down that posterior cushion. Right. And so that's what I did for this kid. I, I just used the suction cautery and just put it on the posterior cushion, keeping it away from kind of the opening of the eustachian tube and shrunk it down. And it worked great. So I did a turbinate reduction shrunk down the tori, and so it got to the point where when I was done, I could put the scope in and I could actually see his nasopharynx instead of just these big, bulky torus obstructing his coina. Yeah. So, did, would you, know, you do a dice in a kid like that? Like we yeah, know we're I did a, a dice. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of so, what that would make sense. Right. So for any of these patients who are coming from the complex sleep clinic, if I go to the OR, I'm going to do a dice um, okay. just because it, it gives so me more information. Taking, um, especially just for the dice to the OR like that. And I know you kind of touched on that. Well, some people would say, no, we're going to go to the OR, get a dice. That's part of my information. Usually they're going to the OR for something else. Usually, usually. Okay. So it's that's not how routine. I usually do it too. Yeah. That's how I usually would do it too. And it's yeah. because of that extra anesthesia. Like, and that, that being said, the information, you know, there is more and potentially other information for, you know what I mean? That, for sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's that's our approach. But if, if we go to the OR for any reason, I'm going to do a dice on these patients, right? It just mm-hmm. gives us more information. Uh, and when I did a dice on this patient, the area of obstruction was his torus. You could actually see those tori coming together and obstructing his nasopharynx. Yeah. And it was, it, it, it's interesting because like he had so much nasal resistance that downstream in his oropharynx, that was all collapsing as well because he was just working so hard to try and pull air through his nose. So hopefully, you know, I got his nose open. You know, we, we, we were very blunt with the family that this procedure is not going to fix your sleep apnea, right? You're not going to wake up and it's gone. But our hope is that we can make it more comfortable for you to wear your, your CPAP you know, mask. And if we could potentially get them just like a nasal airway mask, kids tend to do better with those. Um, and if we can get that, that nasal resistance down, we haven't proved this. This is kind of our uh, hypothesis. So still in the process of kind of collecting data. But our hypothesis yeah. is if we can decrease nasal resistance, we can make it more comfortable to wear the mask and increase compliance. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, two quick questions about the dice. You'll do it um, before and after the procedure that you're addressing, whether it's turbinate reduction, you're going to do it like before the turbinate reduction and after turbinate reduction, or like, you know, TNA before the TNA and after the TNA. And is it just your kids with like severe or from the complex sleep clinic? When you mean after, do you mean like during the same like, anesthetic let's say, event? Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's say the child has an AHI, you know, it's a five-year-old, let's say otherwise healthy, uh, slightly, let's say slightly over overweight uh, for some reason, um, and has an AHI of like, you know, 30. And you're going to, and two, three plus tonsils. Do you usually do a, and you plan for a TNA, do you do a dice for a child like that? Or like, when do you, who do you decide needs a dice? And if you're going to do it, do you have like a pre-procedure scope and then whatever you're doing at the time of that surgery, that, and then a post-procedure scope or dice? Yeah. So, so I used to do a dice for all patients who are high risk for post-operative sleep apnea. Um, so that meant I was doing a lot of like obese patients. Mm-hmm. And I stopped doing that just because, you know, I found it was, 
it was just it was too high risk for these patients, and it wasn't changing what I what I did. Um, yeah, you know, because that induction for those kids can it can get south fast. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. they're a high yeah. risk, that, and so there's got to be a re- yeah. It depends on who you're, you know, how comfortable and sort of how they how they the patient also tolerates anesthesia. So right, right, yeah. So these obese patients, you know, they're they're not down to the patient. They don't they don't have kind of the complexity to the collapse that, that they do. And so, yeah, you know, there's a few times where I'd have this like 250 pound, 300 pound patient on the table trying to do a dice. And the anesthesiologist like, is working really hard to maintain that airway. And I asked myself, like, is this risk, is it worth it? And, and I came to the conclusion, I don't think so for these patients just because it's not changing my, my uh, management. But for the, de- the downstream patients, it's not necessarily changing my management, but the incidence of these kids having residual sleep apnea is so high. And it, and it can be so varied, right? You know, is it tongue-based? Is it a floppy epiglottis? And I do a bronchoscopy for all those patients as well with Down syndrome. So they're really the ones I'll do it before the TNA. Uh, so just the patients with Down syndrome, I'll do a, a, T, uh, a dice prior to the TNA. So, but same anesthetic event, right? So, um, and, I, and I can talk about my techniques. So it's, it's been kind of funny. Like, I feel like it's always evolving and, I, and I'm really happy with my current like cocktail right now. And so I used to use Dr. Koltai's uh, cocktail where you'd give one to two mics of dexmedetomidine and um, ketamine. And then you just kind of wait for 10 minutes and then start your dice. You know, and that was fine. But, but some of the issues I was having with the ketamine was there was a lot of dysphoric issues. So they'd wake up, you know, dysphoric, and it would take them a long time to wake up as well. And so like Norman Friedman, for example, like he, he uses Stex only. And I was, I was noticing that like if it was just Stex, I was having a hard time kind of getting him to that state quickly. And so we actually increase how fast we give it. And so what we're doing currently is we're doing one to two mics per kilogram of dex over five minutes. And so we're pushing it really quickly. And then I don't start the sleep endoscopy till five minutes. And it's been working out really, really well. The patients are waking up quicker and we're not having as many of those, those dysphoria issues. Yeah, and it gets them into that nice state where they're snoring and they're just deep enough that you can put a scope in their nose without them waking up and swatting it out. But you're not getting that artificial uh, collapse yeah. as well. And is that something you kind of came up with with your anesthesia colleagues? And is exactly. it usually the same anesthesia provider that you work with for these patients? Or no. do you mm. kind of get... There's there's some that that are like more into it than others. And so with yeah. those ones, we, we kind of always brainstorm and kind of have this conversation like, well, let's try this, let's try that. And then the other ones will just be like, oh, you know, what's your cocktail? How are you doing it these yeah. days? <laughs> right? <laughs> and they always ask me right. that every time because they know like I'm always kind of changing it. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's where we're at now. And I, I'm pretty happy with the one to two mics per kilogram of dex over five minutes. Okay. And then you touched on CPAP. And I, I think I, I like the idea of, because um, this is how we used to practice uh, in Dallas as well, is, you know, the trial of C- a good CPAP trial. My question for you is what defines like a good trial of CPAP and what is considered success? Because, you know, is it, you know, getting, wearing it, is wearing it 50% of the night for five days over, you know, four months successful? Or does it need to be you know, is there certain criteria that the that you guys have? Right. So, so that's like the technical criteria, right? Like fifty to eighty percent of the night for five nights a week. But when you really sit down and you talk to these families, it you know it, it goes beyond that. So you know, it's for a lot of these families, they might be doing that. You know, the the kid might be you know a seven year old kid with Down syndrome, and and we pull up the, the data and we see, oh, he's doing a good job wearing a CPAP. But then you actually sit down and you talk to the family, and mom will tell you will tell you she hasn't slept in seven months. Right, she's waking up three or four times a night because she hears a mask leak, and she has to go in the room and put it back on. And mom's exhausted. You know that the family is affected by what's going on. So is that realistic, right? So, so maybe technically it's it's working, 
but is that is that really working for the family? And so I'd, I'd say no, right? So you, you really have to kind of get into this. Like, how is this CPAP affecting the family? You know, sometimes some of these Downs, Downs kids like absolutely love it, right? So they won't go to bed until they have their CPAP on and they'll remind the parents to put it on. And if they wake up and they feel a mask leak, they adjust it themselves and they're, they're just rock stars, right? Like we don't have to worry about them. They're going to do great. Yeah. And there's other ones who, you know, especially if they have autism, they just, they just don't accept it. And you have these, these great moms who, who will give everything they have to keep the CPAP on, but mom's not doing well or dad's not doing well, right? So in a situation like that, we might be more prone to, to try some other option besides CPAP. And so tell me about other options in your decision-making when it comes to uh, secondary surgery. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's kind of your, your typical approaches. So I think, I think a lot about the nose, right? I'm, I'm pretty quick to almost always do a, a turbinate reduction if there's any nasal obstruction as well. You know, if you see any residual adenoid tissue, it's, it's an easy decision to go ahead and remove it. There's lots of upside and very little downside. As far as addressing the palate in kids, I'm, I'm careful. I, I do it from time to time, but when you do like a UPPP, I tell the family they're probably going to be in the hospital for a, a week, right? Because th- these are, you know, it's this picture like your Down syndrome kid with a small nasopharynx, with a small oral cavity, with this long floppy palate, right? Like you can do a UPPP and it's, it's going to give him that retrovelar space he needs, but they're so miserable <laughs> that he's not going to feed well, you know? So it's a lot to put him through. You know, I occasionally do it, but only if I really, really feel like it's absolutely necessary. What we probably do more of is, is lingual tonsillectomies. So these are kids, even in the office, you know, you'll, you'll do an awake scope and you'll see these huge lingual tonsils that completely fill up the follicula. They're, you know, coming up over the top of the epiglottis, uh, in many cases, pushing epiglottis posteriorly, even when they're awake, right? And so then you take these kids to the, the OR for sleep endoscopy and, you know, you almost can't even see the epiglottis just because everything's falling back. What's, what's challenging for these kids is, you know, you can do a lingual tonsillectomy but, but often it's not just the tonsillate to the issue, right? It's, it's also the muscle tone. So, you know, I've done a lot of lingual tonsils, done a lot of tongue-based reductions, I've done a lot of epiglottopexies, where at the end of the pr- procedure, you're like, this is awesome. There was no space here before, and now it's wide open. And you're really looking forward to getting that post-operative sleep study. And you get it, and you're disappointed, right? And the kid still has an AHI of 10 plus, and they still need, you know, a CPAP. And that's disappointing, right, for them to kind of go through that whole thing and still need CPAP regardless. And really what it comes down to is the part we can't fix is the muscle tone, or at least we couldn't, right? So, you know, that's what's exciting about uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulation is now we have a way of actually addressing that muscle tone. And so I, I think I've become more conservative with, with these procedures just because I, I don't think it's a magic bullet. I think TNA is a magic bullet, right? It's like the most routine thing we do. You know, it's considered our bread and butter, quote unquote, but it works incredibly well, right? For so many reasons, right? So, you know, we kind of talked about like, is TNA the right thing to do for all kids with sleep apnea, you know, to be determined, but it's amazing how well it works. Uh, but these other procedures, we're still learning, right? We're still kind of in our, our infancy of secondary, you know, pediatric sleep surgery uh, and figuring out what works for these kids. But yeah, those, those are your options. When I, when I think about the airway, I, I think about three things. I think of like the triangle of what does their skeletal structure look like? Right. And that's, that's supported a lot by their teeth. Right. So they have, you know, poor occlusion. They're not eating. They're not going to have that normal developed skeletal structure that's going to suspend the soft tissue open. I think about the soft tissue, right. Is there extra soft tissue? Right? Is, do they have macroglossia? Do they have enlarged lingual tonsils, adenoids? You know, is the soft tissue in the way? And then the third part of that triangle for it all to work is the tone, right? Like what's the yeah. tone that they're providing to that airway at night to keep it open? 
Yeah, and it, and you're right. It's going to be whether it's your neuro develop, you know, your neuro kids, CP kids. To I've seen skinny, no diagnosed past medical history kids with severe OSA that persists, and it's it's got to be something with you know that the tone plays a big role. Um, so tell me a little bit about your experience with the hypoglossal nerve stimulator. So I'm just getting started. Actually, it took me a while to get it approved at my hospital. But I finally did, and I did my first awesome. implant. Congratulations! About, yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> this is—is is this still like an F, an FDA? Is it under FDA, like a site for study? Tell me, like, is that sort of uh, where we are with this in pediatrics? Um, so they actually just got FDA approval for children with Down syndrome, thirteen plus, um, wow, okay. about a month ago. Yeah. So this That's is brand amazing. new news. Just came out. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about that is, as far as I know, I, I might be wrong, but when I was talking to the rep and I was looking at the uh, announcement, I didn't see that there was a, a weight criteria on there because, you know, a lot of these Down syndrome patients are, are obese yeah. and maybe not morbidly, but they're big. That's part of the syndrome is their right. basal metabolic rate is slower and they tend to be heavy. So a lot of them wouldn't qualify if you had this strict, like, so for adults that say, you know, a BMI of 32, right? Or if, if we say for pediatrics, you know, BMI for each percentile of 95 or less. You know, a lot of them wouldn't fit into that. And so what's exciting about this is that that's not part of it. So so I think a lot of these patients will be candidates. And I think it's going to make a huge wow. difference for these patients. You know, all the is studies there, coming out are showing that it makes a big difference for them. And is this, um, is there an HI um, range? Is there an HI too high or an HI, is it like your moderate to an HI of 30? Like who are the kids that would, that you could offer this to? I don't know. I need to double check that. For adults, they would say an HI of 15 plus. Yeah. For the kids, I didn't see uh, an HI criteria on there. I think most of us probably wouldn't use it unless it's, you know, at least severe, maybe moderate if they're very symptomatic. Uh, but I don't, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. And in terms of uh, bringing this to your practice, um, is this something, did you, have you been able to train with your adult colleagues on the actual surgical procedure? Have you had the opportunity to travel and see other surgeons? How did you because this is, you know, what's so exciting is um, it's something that you've been a part of in terms of building this practice for the last 10 years. And now you have a new surgical tool, like a new skill set to develop and, you know, kind of mid-career. Tell me about that experience, developing something new and different. Yeah. So, so Inspire, the company, does a great job of, of teaching. And really from the beginning, they've, they've been very careful about making sure surgeons don't get complications. And so they have a great education, educational component built in to their training. And so, you know, they have these guys that go around the country and they'll, they'll sit down with you. They'll have you come and kind of do the training course. And it's like four hours of didactics, like sitting in the classroom, talking about dissecting out the hypoglossal nerve. And so what's interesting is, you know, we see the hypoglossal nerve, not all the time, like in head and neck surgery. It's not one we like necessarily look for, right? Like we look for 11, you know, or seven. We'd see it, right? But we, we don't necessarily look for it or dissect it out. But in this situation, you're, you're looking for it and you're dissecting it out. And you're actually looking distally on the nerve for the, uh, the protractors and the retractors. And so what you're trying to do is you're just trying to cuff the nerve, the portion of the nerve that stimulates the, the protractor muscles that, that pushes the tongue forward, leaving the retractors out, right? You don't want to stimulate the tongue to go back. And so that's interesting. You know, we never learned that before. That's, that's brand new. And so they do a great job teaching you how to identify that, right? They, teach, they do a great job showing you how to get down to 12, how to get the malohyoid out of the way and give yourself that, that good visualization approach how to dissect it out, how to stimulate it. And, you know, I'd, I'd say as otolaryngologists, that part's, it feels very much within our wheelhouse, right? We're comfortable in the neck, you know, we're comfortable in that area. The part that made me probably most nervous was working in the chest, 
right? And so, so the other part of this is you have to put the lead into the chest. And so you make an incision over the second intercostal space, dissect down to it, and then you're actually putting the, the sensing probe between the external and, inter, and internal intercostal muscles. So, you know, we, we do pec flaps and things like that, at least we did in residency. As, as a pediatric oligodist, yeah. I don't do pec flaps anymore. <laughs> Yeah, so we, that. I'm like, right. I haven't done a pick clock in about 15 years, but short, yeah. Javen. <laughs> so, you know, we've been in the area, but it's not an area that we're like super comfortable being. You know? And at least I, I have to say, I, I wasn't super comfortable being there, but they do a great job. They, they have a cada- cadaver dissection course and you go in there and you practice on the cadavers and, and they have, you know, the, the reps show up to your, your first, you know, handful of surgeries um, to really kind of walk you through and kind of be there for you. And, and it's great. Yeah. So where I started off in my, my hospital was, I wasn't able to do it on the, the kids under 18 yet, just because I didn't have FDA approval. But we have, you know, a, a sizable amount of patients who are special needs who are still part of our practice, right? You know, you know when you're at Dallas, you, you know that there's these, you know, CP kids and special needs kids who just don't really transition well to the adult world. So we just kind of keep them with us, right? Like we're comfortable with them, they're comfortable with us. We're kind of built for that type of thing in, in our, our clinics. And so, you know, we'd have these, you know, 19, 20 plus patients. And so my first patient was a patient that had cerebral palsy, pretty, pretty high functioning with very severe sleep apnea. Uh, and she just absolutely couldn't tolerate her CPAP. And so, so she was our first and she was very small. You know, she had very small muscles. Dissecting through her pec major was like two spreads and you're already through it, but it went great. Yeah. And so, so we just got her activated a couple of weeks ago. And things to think about, right, is I haven't seen anything published on other people implanting these types of patients yet. And so one of, one of the challenges is, uh, you know, getting her habituated to the stimulation. And so far she's doing great, but you know, it's something we thought about is like, you know, this is already a patient that has CP, has sleeping issues. You know, how much stimulation will it take before she's gonna awake, right? And so we, we thought about doing like a slower ramp, right? And instead of just doing like a 30 day ramp, doing a slower ramp where we just slowly, slowly increase how fast we're turning up the stimulation. But, but these are challenges that we have to think about but we're excited to see how uh, our outcomes are going to be with these uh, these patients. That's really exciting. One uh, group of kids that we haven't talked about are, you know, about once a year, there was always a kid in our, we it, we didn't have a multidisciplinary sleep clinic, but we had like a rounds, a quarterly rounds that were pulmonologists, our, you know, PD&Ts would come together and discuss some of our difficult patients. And uh, about once a year, we'd have a child that was, you know, does this child need a tracheostomy? Tell me about your experience with, you know, tracheostomy for the indication of obstructive sleep apnea. It's not common, but there are those kids out there. Um, and, do you, you know, I think we're still probably getting closer where other technologies may be helpful to avoid some of those. But some of these are tiny infants, you know, or, you know, under two or, you know, really medically complex kids where it's hard to know what's going to help them. Tell, tell me right. about your experience with that. Yeah. So, so I'd say probably the most common ones, if they're infants, where that, that question comes up, would be the children with pierobin. And what the literature has shown for those, those patients is if they, if they have other comorbidities or they're part of a syndrome, then a distraction won't be as helpful. Or kids that have like, um, bilateral coronal atresia, right? If, if it's part of a syndrome and they have bilateral coronal atresia, we don't always get a sleep study for these patients, but they're obviously obstructing, right? They're obligate nasal breathers. And, you know, sometimes you want to be the hero and go in there and, you know, do a coin latrice repair. But for a lot of these patients, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, so if, if there's lots of comorbidities or not doing well, I think, you know, a trach is probably the right uh, answer for them, best way to help them. 
where it gets really complicated and, and I, there's no set criteria, right, between institutions is maybe like a child with cerebral palsy, right? Yeah. You know, they're too, these kids are interesting because you, you look at them and while they're awake, they essentially look like they're sleeping as far as their airway tone goes, right? Like you see them obstructing in front of you mm-hmm. and you'll do an awake laryngoscopy and watching their airway looks very much like a, what a sleep endoscopy looks like, right? And, and I've actually done that uh, where I've done an awake laryngoscopy and I've done a sleep endoscopy and it doesn't really change. And so for a lot of these patients, I don't feel like I need to do a sleep endoscopy because I'm getting that information while they're awake. So, you know, you said, you know, are there criteria? There, there are no set criteria, right? And this, this is something that we always talk about with other otolingologists. Like, you know, when do you trach this patient? You know, when is this patient sent to you for a trach? And how do you make the decision to do it or not? And, and, and I've, you know, it's a big decision to make, right? When you it do a is. trach or I not. find it really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah. You know, we just had a patient with CP that came through our complex sleep clinic and, and that came up, right? Like, you know, should we do a trach or not? And our plan was to do a sleep endoscopy and a TNA. But in the meantime, before we actually had surgery, she got admitted to the hospital because uh, she was having episodes of cyanosis. And so she gets admitted to the hospital and mom comes in and mom says, you know, I've talked to other people uh, who say trach's not a big deal. I think I'd actually like to do a trach. And so he said, well, you know, trach works great, right? A trach will fix this problem, period. But, you know, is it time yet, right? And so while she's in the hospital, we actually got her fit with the BiPAP that she was tolerating. And I spoke to the pulmonologist and I was like, should we consider a trach? And the, the point that they brought up that I really appreciated was that she didn't have uh, the social support for a trach. And so for a trach, you need to have two full-time providers, right, that are available. And this particular mom was a single mom and grandma lived across the border in Tijuana. And so for this child to get a trach, you're going to basically take her out of her home and she's going to end up in our, our long-term care facility, All right? So, so mom might say, oh yeah, you know, you know, trick's not a big deal. And, and that's kind of what we tell families to, you know, it's, it's reversible, right? In many cases, not always. Uh, and it's, it's not the end of the world, right? But it is a big decision. And in, in many cases, if you don't have that proper care, they might not be able to go, go home with you, right? So there's all these things yeah. to consider. So it's, for me, I, I personally really appreciate having all the different providers uh, on board to make the decision. Um, yeah. before moving forward. Yeah, no, I think those are, that's a great point. It's a, it's a good example. As we wrap things up, any final pearls or words of wisdom to leave our audience with, with your practice? Yeah, for sure. So, so I think taking care of these patients is a practice in humility. It's, yeah. uh, you know, there's no magic, you know, pill or wand that, that fixes this issue. Uh, we're still learning so much, uh, as I hope you could kind of pick up from the way I talked about it. There's so many things we don't know. For any trainees who are interested, you know, I encourage you to do pediatric sleep apnea because, you know, we need your minds, we need your, your time and ability to come in and tackle some of these, uh, you know, complex issues and help us kind of move the ball forward and figure out the best way to take care of these patients. For our listeners, and I wanted, I should have brought this up in the intro, but to learn more about anything pediatric, check out the Syntax Society of ENT for Children. Javen has had, has some podcast episodes, so hopefully we can share some of those links as well when this episode gets released. If our audience or you know listeners have any questions for you, are you on any other social media or uh, they, yeah. how do they reach out to you? Yep, I'm on Twitter at JavenNationMD. Awesome. Yep, as well as Facebook uh, at JavenNation. Awesome. All right, I think yeah. it's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. 
If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.